Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Uh, and for the past four weeks, we've been taking you on a little tour of Whitechapel, London, England in the gruesome autumn of 1888. Uh, when... It's the East End, it. Oi! <laughs> when uh, the serial murderer known only as Jack the Ripper mm. did his hideous crimes. Uh, listen to the first two episodes of this series for a rundown for Carrie's wonderfully researched rundown um, of the whole sordid affair, the deaths of five women in the uh, streets of Whitechapel over the course of a few months, uh, the hapless sort of no answers at all police investigation. Uh, last week, Caroline, you took us through some of the likeliest suspects that have been put forward for the Ripper murders, but of course... Um, it's likely we'll never know who committed this crime. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, and so why do we bother talking about it today? I guess because it's fun, right? Jack the Ripper or like this aspect of it? Well, yes. <laughs> well, we, we talk about Jack the Ripper because it was the first real true crime mania, I would say. Um, but it is fun to, to, to talk about a mystery, right? And um, and it's fun to talk about weird conspiracy theories and magic, which is what we're doing today. Exactly right. Uh, we are going to talk about some of the fringier, some of the fringier theories on the Jack the Ripper crimes. Mm -hmm. uh, th these are some of the oddest balls of mud people have thrown at the wall uh, in trying to come up with a solution for these murderers Th that, again, took place nearly 120 years ago. No, sorry, 134, uh, uh, 134 years ago. <laughs> You've Nearly changed up. it every time. Well, because I keep thinking... Almost 100 years ago. I just keep thinking turn of the century. So my mm -hmm. brain goes to uh, 1920, mm -hmm. 1900, sorry. Boy. Yeah. We're going to start this week with a big name, Carrie. Um, a big name, there was actually recently a uh, History Channel series uh, about this gentleman and the possibility, the case for his being Jack the Ripper. Hmm. Um, that's right. I'm talking about the American Ripper himself, H.H. H. Holmes. Ah. Uh, real name, Herman Webster Mudgett. And this is someone we're definitely going to cover in the future, right? Yes. So we're not going to go too deep. Exactly right. I'm not going to spend too much time on Holmes, not least because, as I will hopefully convince you quickly, I, I really don't think he was involved in these crimes. <laughs> um, but Darn. he's a very interesting guy. There's no question about that. Uh, for those who are somehow, I feel like he's had a real cultural moment, like we've had a holmes assance over the past... Well, ever since that book, The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson came out... Which I think is still being made into a movie, slowly? Yes. So it's an awesome, awesome book. It kind of goes into both the history of the Chicago World's Fair and also at the same time... H.H. Holmes, who was operating during the Chicago World's Fair. And it sounds like it could be pretty dry, but I found it really fascinating. A absolutely. And like I think the greatest true crime works do, it's a real like sense of time and place book. Mm -hmm. like, like you're wandering around those streets mm -hmm. um, and in his famous murder castle. Yes. Yeah, so since then, and since I think it was Scorsese and DiCaprio that got the rights to create the film... Uh, it might be a miniseries, actually. It's changed a lot over the years. But ever since then, people have become more and more interested 
in H.H. Holmes. Um, yeah. So, yeah. He um, is often held up as America's first serial killer in much the way that Jack the Ripper is kind of the first held up often as the first kind of iteration of the serial killer, the modern day serial killer generally. Mm -hmm. Holmes was a con man and yes, certainly a murderer. Um, He was convicted of one murder, but confessed to 27 while awaiting trial. And he was suspected and is suspected today of hundreds of crimes. Mm -hmm. Um, Although if you really look at the evidence and I'll save this broader discussion for when we do an H.H. Holmes episode, Carrie, which as you said is um, certainly forthcoming at some point. It's just so much. There's so much material on this guy. Yeah. Um, He may have only done like nine murders. Only a a light nine. Well, yeah, only nine murders. But compared (laughs) to like 160 murders. Still more than the canonical five. Yes, of course. Uh, There's this public imagination, though, of he has this murder castle and he's like gassing women and dropping them through chutes into a room in the basement where he cuts their heads open and then sells their skeletons. Well, he definitely did a few of those. He did. <laughs> and and the castle was equipped kind of possibly to do all of those things but i i just i don't think he had the kind of numbers that people sometimes attribute to him that's fine real bad guy though yeah um which is why it's so curious that jeff mudget holmes's uh, great great grandson is so interested in talking about how related to um hh <laughs> holmes he is well you know we all have family Mudgett is indeed Holmes's great-great-grandson. He believes himself to also be the great-great-grandson of Jack the Ripper. Hmm. Whom he says... Same man? ...was H.H. Holmes. Oh. Um, he wrote a book on this entitled Bloodstains. I think playing on the idea of like the stains of those crimes still being in Jeff's blood. Hmm. Again, you don't. no one's making you go around talking about it, Jeff. <laughs> It's his therapy. Well, and two things about, just about Jeff Mudgett. I'm not impugning his character in any way, um, but just in terms of credibility for me with this story. I think it's interesting, and I said it was interesting that he likes talking about his murderous great-great-grandfather so much. I don't know. If you've got kind of a macabre sensibility and, you know, you're definitely related to this person, there's no way to not be related, you might as well lean into it. But he also leans more toward the, like, I think he likes the image of Holmes as having murdered hundreds of women in this. Well, um, I mean, if you're going to if you're gonna lean, you might as well lean hard. Yeah, so he's leaning hard. And uh, so the series goes into, uh, oh, because the History Channel, as I said, uh, was it earlier this year or late last year? Uh, one of those. Earlier. <laughs> Recently, the last year. Within the last year, the History Channel did a series called American Ripper. Which is on Hulu now, right? It is now on Hulu, and uh, Jeff Mudgett teams up with an ex-CIA agent to, uh, as he says directly into camera at the beginning of the series, uh, to find enough evidence to prove his theory that his great-great-grandfather was Jack the Ripper. Um, so there, he and this um, CIA agent are rolling around Chicago and London, and it mostly seems like an excuse, and no problem with this, mostly seems like an excuse for the History Channel to just go through the details of both kind of gory series of crimes uh, again. Yeah, why not? Um, but every now and then they will talk to a local expert as they try to establish um, a firm kind of foot trail, uh, you know, a, a trail of breadcrumbs that puts H.H. H. Holmes in London during the Ripper murders. Mm-hmm. 
Now, what they do do, and I believe this is also in Jeff's book, um, but they do point to a pretty, I will admit, eerie gap. So the records of Holmes's life um, are actually pretty meticulous and well-kept because he, he was, was always doing frauds. Yes, he was constantly so. running flim-flams in like a bunch of different states. So you have paper trails. So there's a paper trail for all of this stuff. And there is, in this otherwise pretty... Um, comprehensive record of what Holmes was up to in this time, uh, there is just a gap from, and this chilled my shoulders when I, when I saw it, from July 1888 to March 1889. That's weird. It is weird. And um, once they go to London, they also turned up a record of an H. Holmes mm. booking a ship back to the U.S. in the weeks after Mary Kelly's murder. It's interesting. It is interesting. I'll point out that Holmes wasn't his name. That was the name he was going by. Yeah, but it was... The, so if you went to London to go do a bunch of murders, use a different fake name than the one you're going to open the pharmacy under, you know, in just a couple of uh, months. I don't know. No press is bad press, maybe? <laughs> Um, now, Mudgett also says language analysis has suggested the Dear Boss letter was written by an American. Well, uh, that has been said by several people. You might have even referenced that in the last episode. I'm not sure about an American. When we were talking about Tumble Tea? Maybe. <laughs> it's all a blur. Um, so people have pointed to some language used in the Dear Boss letter that apparently uh, strongly suggests it was an American, not an Englishman, who wrote that letter. Uh, as a reminder for you and for our listeners, I know you don't need the reminder, Carrie. Um, the Dear Boss letter, many have suggested, didn't come from Jack at all, right? But from somebody just trying to screw with police. Yeah, I mean, there are thoughts that none of the letters are from the actual Jack the Ripper. Of course, they came up with the name, right? But maybe he didn't. Um, maybe they're all hoaxes. Yeah. Well, Mudgett says a computer analysis that he ran of the Dear Boss letter ran back a 97% chance that the letter was written by H.H. H. Holmes specifically. Do we have like, like, what is that software? I have no idea. Okay. I have no idea. But I know that he, I think it's probably a custom program. He has a bunch of Holmes's journals that mm -hmm. I think he was basing the quote language patterns on. Ultimately, the best they managed to do on the show is, again, recount both crime series, which are interesting historical details in and of themselves, uh, while convincing us basically that the timeline and location could work, right? Mm -hmm. That they don't rule out H.H. H. Holmes as a suspect. For reasonable doubt. Reasonable doubt is what they're trying to sow here. Um, but just for your and our listeners' edification, my thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. The methods of murder are just so obviously different here, and the motives are so obviously different, uh, because Holmes, all of the victims that we, you know, have confirmed or close to confirmed on H.H. H. Holmes, he was murdering for profit. It was to directly steal their property, or to inherit from uh, wives and ex-wives, or to commit insurance fraud. Or to sell their skeletons to surgical schools. He apparently sold skeletons to surgical <clears throat> schools, and um, sometimes to cover up previous crimes, which, you know, many criminals do. Uh, but that's not what the Ripper was doing. The Ripper seems to have been striking randomly. Much more sexualized. Certainly sexual Much motivation. more hands-on. And the people he's killing don't have any money yeah so it's not it's not a homesy crime and even either the crimes he might have committed before this time or the and or the crimes we know he committed after 
um, there was always some kind of a profit motive involved. Mm -hmm. And he didn't rip anyone. Yeah, I mean, if anything, he mostly kept his hands off if he's gassing people and such. Yeah, he may have like beaten a cousin to death when he was a teenager. Who hasn't? Um, <laughs> but the, I, I, the CIA agent in this History Channel show was like, so obviously if he was the Ripper, his methods evolved over time. It's like, you, yeah, but then they radically evolve again when he comes back to the US and starts gassing people? Yeah, it's hard to believe. Um. The reason Holmes looms large in the imagination is that kind of mechanized, efficient horror of the murder castle. Um, but that is the most different thing from the kind of visceral thrill one imagines the Ripper getting from uh, from ripping. Yeah. So that's uh, that closes the book on H.H. H. Holmes for me. Carrie, any thoughts on H.H. H. Holmes? Uh, obviously, you'll have... Plenty of thoughts when we do um, a whole series on this, again, fascinating, weird, um, you know, mess of a guy. I mean, the time gap is very interesting, um, but there's never going to be a way to prove it, you know? So it, it's certainly food for thought, I don't personally think. The, the, the ways of killing and the reasons for killing are so, so different. I, I don't think they're related. All right. Well, I promise we'll get to some more famous faces later in this podcast. But for now, I want to tell you about a guy you probably haven't heard of. His name, Carl Feigenbaum. Okay. Now, Feigenbaum, uh, born 1840, was a German immigrant who was executed at Sing Sing Prison in New York on April 27th, 1896. The crime? Feigenbaum had brutally murdered his landlady. Let's run it back a little bit. Uh, in August of 1984, <laughs> Juliana Hoffman... 1884 or 1984? Did I say 1984? Yeah. In August 1894, <laughs> Juliana Hoffman, 56 years old, and her 16-year-old son, Michael, decided they needed to supplement their income, so they figured they would put an ad out for a lodger. And the first person to move in, unfortunately for the Hoffmans, mm -hmm. was Carl Feigenbaum. Now, Carl said he didn't have any money for rent when he was moving in, um, because he had just lost his job, but he assured Mrs. Ms. Hoffman that uh, he had been promised a new job as a florist, and once he was paid, he would have the money for her on September 1st. Mm -hmm. September 1st came around, and Michael Hoffman, by the way, Michael and Juliana were sharing a bedroom once they took the lodger in. The lodger was kind of sleeping in Michael's old room, and he was curled up on a small sofa at the foot of his mother's bed. Okay. On the morning of September 1st, Michael was awoken by a scream, and when he looked up, Feigenbaum was looming over his mother's bed with a knife. Mm. He apparently turned toward Michael and brandished the weapon, and Michael just jumped out the window and then watched through the window as Feigenbaum stabbed his mother in the throat oh and then my God. cut straight across from left to right. Ugh. That's horrible. Feigenbaum then dropped the knife, escaped out the window of his own bedroom in the house, washed his hands at the pump in the backyard, and escaped through an alleyway to the street. But by this time, obviously, Michael Hoffman was sprinting through the streets and screaming someone had just killed his mother, and Feigenbaum was arrested basically immediately. Good. Uh, yes, good. Um, it, kind of similar to the uh, man from the train, the Henry Miller story. Yeah. Uh, with a, a lodger or a workman like coming into town, uh, argument over money, and then here we go. Mm -hmm. 
Now, at first, Carl said he did not do this, and it had to have been another guy. Stop. <laughs> no, seriously. He said that he used sometimes let his friend, and this had never been mentioned before. The family knew nothing about this. He said he would let his friend Jacob Weibel sneak in and sleep in the room at night sometimes. Mm-hmm. So nobody bought that even for uh, one second. <laughs> and uh, at trial, the story that's painted is Carl wanted to steal some money from the cupboard, to cover his own rent that he was going to pay Hoffman later that day, presumably. And Mrs. Hoffman woke up and caught him in the act. Um, Carl Feigenbaum is a fake name. His real name is apparently probably Anton Lahn, but it's a little hard to track because all the papers ran with Feigenbaum the whole time. Mm-hmm. He was convicted quickly. There were two years of unsuccessful appeals from his lawyers on the basis of insanity. And he died in the electric chair in April of 1896. Well, he sounds like a dick, but uh, how's this related to Jack the Ripper, Sean? Well, after Feigenbaum's death, there was no mention of this previous to his death, but after his death, his lawyer, a William Lawton, made the following public statement. I have a statement to make. (laughs) Okay. Which may throw some light on the murder for which the man I represented was executed. Now that Feigenbaum is dead and nothing more can be done for him in this world... I want to say as his counsel that I am absolutely sure of his guilt in this case. Mm. And I feel morally certain that he's the man who committed many, if not all, of the Whitechapel murders. Here are my reasons. And on this statement, I pledge my honor. When Feigenbaum was in the tombs awaiting trial, I saw him several times. The evidence in his case seemed so clear that I cast about for a theory of insanity. Certain actions denoted a decided mental weakness somewhere. When I asked him point-blank, did you kill Mrs. Hoffman, he made his reply. I have for years suffered from a singular <laughs> disease which induces an all-absorbing passion. This passion, I need gold. this passion manifests itself in a desire to kill and mutilate the women who falls in my way. At such times, I am unable to control myself. Never do that character again, Sean. On my next visit to the tombs, I asked him whether he had not been in London at various times during the whole period covered by the Whitechapel murders. Yes, I was, he answered. I asked him whether he could not explain some of these cases on the theory which he had suggested to me, and he simply looked at me in reply. Mm -hmm. So this guy, this is a big old press conference for this guy to hold to say, my client did not tell me he was Jack the Ripper. It's very unusual for a lawyer to do this. Um, Some lawyers do really like being on television. No, I know. You think of Norm Pattis, that guy who everybody (laughs) was just making fun of after the Alex Jones trial. Right. But I mean, it's unusual for like someone to die, you know, a defendant and then to come out and be like, yeah, I thought he was guilty the whole time. And he's Jack the Ripper. Uh, yes. I mean, obviously the, the last part, but like most lawyers don't. Well, he is a, maybe he's talk a def- about their cases like that. He's a defense lawyer who just lost a trial, presumably badly. Several years of unsuccessful appeals. Maybe he's like, "Hey, just so you guys know, <laughs> I Hail lost. Mary. I lost because my client was literally Jack the Ripper." So I mean, you know, can't do anything about that. Uh, no one at this time, no one at the time, really made much of Lawton's dramatic press conference. It did make the papers, but the theory didn't gain traction, even with Lawton's own law partner. Uh, the New York Times printed Hugh Pentecost's comments. That's the Hugh law partner. Hugh Pentecost? Yeah, he's a religious man. Good God. Uh, his comments were printed as follows. I do not like to spoil a good story, but I take no stock in my colleague's story myself. Well, 
as to facts. Mr. Lawton, of course, is able to tell more than I, as I only knew our client to talk through an interpreter. In Feigenbaum, I found nothing in his homicidal method to remind me of the Ripper. Okay. Um, what he say? What he was saying there is, he's pretty sure the client doesn't speak English, so he's not sure where Lawton was doing this interview with. Him. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> Feigenbaum wouldn't come back into fashion as a Ripper suspect until 2005, Caroline when true crime author and former British homicide detective Trevor Marriott put him forward in Jack the Ripper, the 21st century investigation. Mm. Uh, Marriott claims that before his time as kind of an itinerant Manhattan gardener, uh, Feigenbaum was a crewman aboard a German merchant ship called the Reicher. And, mm-hmm. and he, sa- he says that he located the records that confirm he was a crewman on this ship. And the Reicher was docked in British ports near Whitechapel in the fall of 1888, hmm. which is another one of those kind of make your back of your neck prickle moments. Marriott also points out a number of unsolved killings of women, particularly sex workers, that may have fallen along Feigenbaum's global travel path. So he's kind of making a man from the train argument, actually, Mm. but uh, based on the ocean. I will point out, and I must point out, (laughs) that unlike axe murders of uh, whole families like the Jameses we're looking at in The Man from the Train, unsolved murders of sex workers are never hard to find. Yeah. At any time or place. They're not rare. In the world or in history. Yeah. Uh, For example, one of... uh, Just as an example of one of the crimes he points to as another possible Feigenbaum, uh, Carrie Brown was found badly mutilated on a bed in a cheap hotel in the Bowery. Oh, yeah. I think I mentioned that one last week. uh, In April 1891. Yes, because the papers immediately proclaimed that the Ripper had come Mm -hmm. to New York. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, um, we keep talking about Jack the Ripper, and I think you may have paid... (laughs) We sure do, Sean. You may have paid some lip service to this last week, um, but some people at the time, most notably Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The writer of Sherlock Holmes. Of course, the writer of Sherlock Holmes and noted believer in fairies. (laughs) We'll talk about that another time. uh, Advanced the theory that Jack the Ripper could have been a woman. Yes, Sean. She could have been. A Jill the Ripper, if you will. Mm -hmm. You know, it made me think of that old uh, doctor was a woman thing. Because it's like, well, maybe the reason they never suspected is because people were talking about Jack had to be a doctor. The Ripper was a woman. (laughs) The Ripper was a woman. The doctor was a woman. Um, Theorists on this imagined a, quote, mad midwife uh, who would be able to come and go at all hours, covered in blood without raising anybody's attention. And she had to know... She had to be a midwife to know where the uterus was? No, no, no. Uh, if you were dressed as... A, she didn't even have to be a midwife, but she maybe... If w- people saw a woman walking through the streets all covered in blood at all hours of the night, they would just assume she was a midwife coming from a birth. I see. You know, all these births that are happening all over the place. Yeah. I mean, probably. Yeah. It's a crowded <laughs> area. Um, but, he, but it's also... But, you know, Conan Doyle also suggested a midwife or an actual midwife, would have the anatomical knowledge to do this ripping that we're talking about. If a woman of the time knows what a uterus is, she knows where it is. Yes, so you don't need her to be a midwife to explain that. Like, I know, like, the ballpark, you know? I think any woman would. Uh, Yeah, people are fascinated by trying to justify this need for anatomical knowledge, and I I think it plays into the fascination with the uh, Gentleman Jack kind of icon. I I absolutely agree. 
Um, in any case, DNA analysis on the backs of those stamps on the 1888 letters to police. Um, <laughs> the funny thing about these letters is they've been analyzed with handwriting and with language and with DNA by a bunch of different teams who in some cases have come to uh, different conclusions. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of these teams did say that the sender was probably female. Or she's the one who licked the stamp. Or a, a lady licked the stamp. That's true, too. Um, mitochondria again, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily matter because the Ripper may not have written any of these. Yes. Oh, yes. All completely true. But this is all goes into the discussion of Jack the Ripper as a woman. Um, there have never been any convincing suspects raised at this. Uh, in, in fact, there's only one, really, who seems to have been mentioned in the papers or speculated about at the time. And that was Mary Piercy. Uh, Mary was born Mary Wheeler. She got Piercy from a former common-law husband, former by this time. At some point, Mary had started living with a furniture remover. All the jobs sound so glamorous in Whitechapel. Furniture remover? Uh, he doesn't bring it in. He only brings it out. Only bring it out! Is he like a repo man? Yeah, Maybe, yeah. Furniture remover. <laughs> uh, Frank Hogg. Oh, boy. Now, Frank at the time also had a live-in girlfriend named Phoebe Stiles. Phoebe Styles is like a trendy name. It is a trend. It's such a trendy name that she also named her baby Phoebe. I <laughs> so, would too. Um, because apparently at some point, Phoebe got pregnant, which you would think would make it awkward. The three of them, you know, it's gets house is getting smaller now. Um, and Frank married Phoebe, oddly enough, at Mary's urging, from what I can tell. Mary was like, oh, can you, you guys can't have this baby out of wedlock. You should definitely get married. Well, it's a supportive thruple situation. And she moved out and to, to let the family be together. Hmm. The baby was named Phoebe Hogg. Mm, not well, as good. Not as good as Phoebe Styles. And Mary found her own place to live. And as you say, this seems like she's just giving them their space. And this is a pretty healthy thruple. <laughs> Until on October 24th, 1890... Mary invited Phoebe over for a visit at her new place. Mm. The neighbors, some neighbors, reported screaming sometime around 4 p.m., but it doesn't seem like anyone investigated. I guess because screams were so common in Whitechapel. Yep. Later on, Mary Piercy was seen pushing a stroller sometime after dark. And even later that night, in separate parts of the neighborhood, separated by about a mile or so, uh, Phoebe's corpse was found on a pile of rubble with her head crushed almost off her shoulders. And her baby, Phoebe, a.k.a. Tiggy, apparently smothered. Oh. And the blood-soaked black stroller that she had arrived at the house in were found in separate locations. Yikes. Mary was hanged on December 23rd, 1890, and I think she was pointed to as a Ripper uh, possibility only because some people were casting about for a female suspect and um, I guess just women murdering was hard to imagine. So this one stuck in the, in the mind. Yeah, I, I think that's what... I mean, this is so targeted. It couldn't be more different from... I mean, yeah. it's crushing and not uh, cutting or ripping. There's a baby involved. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just... It's a very targeted crime of passion sort of situation. Not really related to ripping at all, but you know... I mean, ladies doing it for themselves, I guess. Uh. <laughs> it's nice. You love to see it. <laughs> not not this one. Um, let's finish out our uh, uh, lady rippers here with uh, with even, even more so than Mary Piercy. This is absurd. There's no connection here. Um, but I found it to be a really interesting story. So I want to tell you about Lizzie Halliday. Born Lizzie McNally, an Irish-American serial murderess convicted of four slayings in 1894. 
Lizzie's perhaps most notable as the first woman ever to be sentenced to death by electric chair in the world. Wow. Good for her. Uh, She wasn't executed. Even better for her. That sentence was later commuted. More on that in a moment. Um, Born Lizzie McNally, Lizzie moved from New York to... uh, Moved to New York, sorry, from Ireland with her family at age three or four. And uh, later in life would go on to have a colorful series of marriages. (laughs) She married a Charles Hopkins in 1879, who died a year later. We're not sure how. She then married Artemis Brewer in 1881. He died less than a year later. We're, we're not sure how. No reports on that. Her third husband was Hiram Parkinson, who left her within a year of marriage. He might have seen her eyeing the knives in the drawer and yeah. uh, gotten the right idea. After Parkinson, she married George Smith, a Civil War vet, um, who had served with Brewer, her second husband. Hmm. She fled his house and the state after apparently attempting to poison his tea. Mm-hmm. But she would next marry Charles Haystell of Vermont. You can't keep her down. She's going to find love. <laughs> I guess. Uh, she vanished two weeks after that wedding, just in the wind, and oh. would later resurface in Pennsylvania under a different name where she was arrested for burning down the shop that she had just opened in an attempted insurance scam. Good Lord. Um, serial killers carry often have insurance scams and things like that. They're always tricksters. They love yeah. getting one over on people. I guess so. Um, 1889. Now Lizzie, uh, now Lizzie Brown. She had changed her first name back to Lizzie at this point and her last name. She was going by Brown. She became housekeeper and then wife. Ooh. Of, <laughs> of, of Maria sep- Von Trapp. Of 70-year-old widowed farmer Paul Halliday. Mm-hmm. Um, They apparently had a tumultuous marriage for the next two years until finally one day the house and barn both burned down with Paul's mentally handicapped son, John, locked inside. No. Yeah. John died, of course. Um, Lizzie, there was no like positive proof that Lizzie had done it, but everyone just like it it sounds like everyone, her husband included, just kind of figured she did it because (laughs) she had openly hated the, the guy. Wow. Uh, she was sent briefly to an asylum. Then she was declared cured and sent home. <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, within weeks of her coming home, Paul disappeared. Her husband. She, she went back to him? He took her back? Yeah. And then he vanished. What magical vagine does this woman have? He, she comes back. To, well, I don't know how long she was there. It might have been like, you can't come back in. You killed my son. And then she just kills him. Oh, my God. Um, I think it was an argument between the two of them. because So, anyway, um, people ask, oh, what happened to Paul? And Lizzie said, oh, he just went off to a, a nearby town to do some masonry work. Didn't even name the town. He's 70 years old. <laughs> He's 70 years old. He's going to go God. lay some bricks, bring in some extra cash. Mm-hmm. Uh, he presumably has money, by the way, because that's why Lizzie married him, right? I, I would think. Um, the neighbors immediately knew something wasn't right. <laughs> Of course, and a search warrant was executed on September 4th, at which point two dead women were found buried in the hay in the barn. Both of them had been shot. Who were they? They were identified as Margaret and Sarah McQuillan, who were two members of the family that Lizzie had stayed with in Philadelphia when she was running her insurance scam. Jeez. Lizzie couldn't be questioned at this point because as soon as like police entered her residence, she started tearing at her clothes and babbling incoherently, which she basically did 
until they packed her off to an asylum. <laughs> she was at this point, by the way, how old do you think she is? 35. Exactly right. Good. Six husbands down, 35 years old. Paul was found mutilated, shot, and buried beneath the floorboards. And in jail, Lizzie then refused to eat. She would attack anyone entering her cell, including they brought in the sheriff's wife, I guess, like, look, it's another woman. It's another woman. Can't you guys get along? And it's she, another of women. And she physically attacked her. Um, she tried to hang herself. She cut her own throat or attempted to with some glass. But eventually, they did manage to try her and sentence her to death. Um, but as I said, the sentence was commuted. And Lizzie would spend the rest of her life, 24 more years, in Matawan State Hospital for the criminally insane until she died of kidney disease in 1918. Now, during all of this furor with the trial, uh, the sheriff of Sullivan County made an offhand comment to the press that, <laughs> That's it. that Lizzie Halliday was, quote, probably connected to the Whitechapel murders. <laughs> He's probably just fucking around. W- which she apparently spoke of incessantly. She was obsessed by the... Yeah, I could see her being interested. Um, and the local papers did make much of, of that. Of course. Assertion. But of course, it's very silly. I just thought she was such a colorful character yeah. that I had to cover her here. Um, but we're going to get back to what really happened. We're going to <laughs> oh, we're going to get into the royal conspiracies and the black magic after the break. Oh boy! Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Welcome back. When last we left you, we uh, went over the first of these kind of uh, fringe theories about Jack the Ripper. Uh, Caroline would call them fringe theories. I call them unvarnished truth, of course. (laughs) Uh, We covered uh, H.H. Holmes. We covered some murderous women. And uh, we also covered the, I would say, strangely plausible Carl Feigenbaum. I don't know. Oh, I don't think he did it. (laughs) Strangely plausible vaguely plausible and now it's finally uh, i know our listeners have been waiting for it it's finally time to talk about the royal family of england and how they were involved in the deaths of these five women and um you know (laughs) sorry for their loss and sorry for their recent loss yes of course (laughs) we're all taking the queen's death terribly well just saying um so first i want to talk about um Queen, I I guess this is Queen Lizzie's uh, ancestor in some kind of way, uh, Prince Albert Victor. Maybe you can fill me in on the relationship there. 
Prince Albert Victor was the first born son of Victoria and Albert, Queen Victoria and Albert. Albert being a birdie, the famous birdie they always talk about, right? No? No. He birdie was Queen Elizabeth's dad. Oh. So um, Albert Victor was supposed to be the king eventually, but that didn't happen. I think it went to George. Is that because he was like dumb and no one liked him? No, I think he died. Oh. <laughs> um, so I think it went to George, who was Elizabeth's grandfather. So I think Victoria's her great-grandfather. Uh, but he was just kind of a dumb guy, right? And kind of gawky, and nobody really liked him. And they really liked his mom? Probably. I don't know much about him. His mom was Princess Alexandra. Um, in any case, as far as I know... Um, Prince Albert Victor was not actually implicated by any, you know, newspaper or rumor that I can find at the time of the murders. However, Philippe Julien's uh, 1962 biography of Edward VII mentions in passing that, quote, the prince and the Duke of Bedford were both rumored to be responsible when the killings were going on. Interesting. Um, Did you just make that up? It's the first mention anyone's ever found uh, of him in connection with these crimes. Like it's the first one anyone can identify. Um, it has been suggested that Julien, who was a correspondent of Thomas Stowell, uh, the writer who would, um, who would implicate uh, uh, Albert Victor a few years later, it, they were correspondents. So it's possible that Stowell had shared that story with Julien. Okay. So the theory really gets out there and I do mean out there, um, when Thomas Stowell writes about it in 1970 um, in an article called The Solution that was published in the Criminologist Journal as, interestingly enough, I think you'll appreciate this, kind of a blind item. Uh, the, <laughs> really? The, yeah, the culprit in this, this article. This uh, prince. He's referred to as S. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the culprit is referred to as S, but there's enough clues that you know he's talking about. Albert, uh, he's like this high starch collar wearing <laughs> son of a handicapped bitch. noble. Um, Stowell claims to have used the personal papers of William Gull as his primary source in this article. Sir William Gull being the um, physician to both the king and the prince at this time. Um, yeah, so the the royalty royals have private physicians. They're always on call, and they only really treat them. Right. So that's what William Gull is. Yes, William... Family doctor. William Withy Gull, who we will uh, talk more about in just a moment, I promise. Um, so he claims that Gull's papers are his main source, but this is where it does get difficult, because we don't have access to those papers. Who has them? Well, no one else besides Stowell has seen them, uh, the papers that he's talking about. He died days after this article was published. Oh my God. And his son burned all of his papers. So he was in ownership of Gull's papers, so he says. He says... Or do we know that for sure? I think the situation implies either that he made this shit up whole cloth or he got it out of uh, letters of William Gull that he had that were then burned by his son. Was his son supposed to do this? His son said, I didn't read any of it. Uh, I, I read just enough of everything to make sure nothing was important before I burned it. Bro... So, now, the, the, the mere fact of Stowell's papers being burned might be the best argument for this theory. 
as you'll find out in a moment, the evidence is pretty thin on the ground otherwise. And, um, you know, it does kind of send a shiver down your spine when you hear that they were like mysteriously lost all these papers that could have proved or disproved this, uh, theory. Right. I mean, it is ironic that he died right after. Yes. So Stowell claims based, although that's not how covers cover ups ever actually work. You don't kill someone after they spill the beans. Cause no, I, I'm just saying it's ironic. Yes. Uh, Stoll claims, based on what he says Gull's papers say, that number one, Eddie, uh, Prince Albert Victor was called Eddie by everyone. Well, hmm. I don't know if it, one of his names was Edward. Um, he was, I know he was his, He was the Duke of Clarence and Avondale, mm-hmm. but uh, he, I don't know. Uh, in any case, Stoll claims Eddie was a secret homosexual that Eddie had contracted syphilis during his military service in the West Indies. I think he, the only reason he tries to convince us that Eddie was secretly gay is because he thinks only gay people get syphilis. Mm-hmm. Um, the late, or people who frequent prostitutes, of course, the late stages of the disease would then have driven Eddie mad and compelled him to commit the Ripper murders. Uh... Stoll says the royal family knew, quote, Definitely after the second murder, and possibly even after the first, that it was Prince Albert Victor who was responsible. But it wasn't until after the double event that they intervened and packed him away to a private mental institution. But then, Albert Victor escaped to commit the final murder of Mary Kelly, which was his masterpiece. Mm -hmm. And Stoll puts the uh, cherry on the top of all this by comparing the mutilations of the victims to the way rich English nobles might clean and truss up a deer on one of their hunts. Mm-hmm. Um, now, all this said, court and royal records show Eddie not even being in London on the dates of the murders. Was he at an institution? No, he was not. Okay. And there is otherwise no evidence that he was suffering from syphilis. So this whole thing kind of falls apart immediately when you poke at it. Right. How did he die? Uh, Eddie? Mm-hmm. Not from syphilis. He died of influenza. Hmm. Okay. Why? If he was driven mad by syphilis, I mean, I've, I've heard the, the explanation given before that maybe Jack the Ripper was someone who had contracted tuberculosis or syphilis or some sort of wasting disease from a prostitute and was killing sex workers in order to get revenge for his soon-to-be death. Right. The best Stoll has here is that the syphilis just made him crazy. Right. And but then he was hunting he would think these that women. He would kill men. And then he was hunting these women like they were deer. Mm-hmm. You know, probably with some kind of a... I feel like when people go crazy and start cutting up sex workers, it's always like the voice of God is telling them to... Yeah, I guess. It's just a roundabout way to get there. I agree. Why not just say he hated sex workers and wanted to kill them? Why do the whole, he was secretly gay and he had the syphilis and blah, 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 and then he went crazy and that's why he killed them. Well, I agree. It adds so many different points that you can refute this on that it's kind of crazy. Well, it just zigzags around. I mean, just take the the path of least resistance here. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Um, Well, I will hopefully, hopefully Stowell will take that into account when he writes his next one. Um, He's dead. Yes, he is. (laughs) But I wanted to bring that theory up because it's kind of a precursor. Um, Royal involvement, you'll see, Carrie, in the Ripper crimes stayed in the public imagination. 
1973, Prince Albert Victor would show up again in a popular theory, this time as a hapless bystander. Hmm. The BBC, no less an institution than the British Broadcasting Company, aired Jack the Ripper in 1973, a kind of hybrid documentary fiction program that featured two fictional detectives named Barlow and Watt. Of of the time or, or of 1973? Uh, no, they were... No, they were, yeah, they were detectives like in, in Gaslamp, London. Okay. Investigating apparently mostly true evidence and information. Mostly true. The final episode of the series features testimony from a guy calling himself Joseph Sickert, a.k.a. Joseph Gorman, his birth name. Gorman claims his illegitimate father, Walter Sickert, told... And we talked about him. Yes, he claims... The painter. Yes, we did, because Patricia Cornwall implicated Sickert in her book. Mm-hmm. Um, Joseph Gorman claims that Sickert was his illegitimate father, and that Sickert told him the whole sordid story that I'm about to tell you. Wow, spell the tea, queen. I will add, Carrie, that this framework uh, the BBC used of a fictional detective or reporter hearing the story from Sickert's descendant, even, is exactly later used in Alan Moore's From Hell, uh, which is, if you're interested in this royal conspiracy uh, theory, then that's the version I would suggest to reading. It's obviously all fiction, but any account of this theory is fiction, so uh, that's the best written and the funnest one. And they do a royal adjacent thing in the Jack the Ripper miniseries with Michael Caine as well. Yes. But please, uh, spill the tea. Well, uh, first things first. Gorman's Catholic grandmother, as it turns out, secretly married Prince Albert Victor, making Gorman's mother the rightful heir to the throne. Okay. He says the Ripper murders were committed by Dr. William Gull, that aforementioned uh, physician, as part of a cover-up conspiracy executed by the royal family. Mm -hmm. The BBC program was later turned into a book called The Ripper File in 1975. Meanwhile, journalist Stephen Knight became obsessed with Gorman's story and published his own research in the smash hit book, uh, the very unfortunately named book, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. Yeah, I've heard of that one. <laughs> in 1976. Um, so, here's Gorman's story. Uh, the, uh, let me spill the tea for you, Carrie, because this is very soapy. Mm-hmm. Gorman says that Albert Victor's mother, Alexandra, introduced Walter Sickert, the famous painter, to her son to teach him about art. Now, royals probably do this all the time. Uh, come on, Rodin, let's talk about Plato or what, whatever. Albert Victor soon began an affair with one of Sickert's models, a woman named Annie Crook. Now, apparently, Albert and Annie had a... Sorry, I should say Eddie. Eddie and Annie had a daughter named Alice. And Albert Victor quietly put the mistress and her baby up in a nice flat on Cleveland Street. Modest, but, you know, comfortable. Mm-hmm. Queen Victoria and British Prime Minister of the time, Lord Salisbury... Oh, of the steak. Yeah, I love his gravy. Um, <laughs> when they found out, they decided they couldn't risk a revolution in the streets due to this potential Catholic heir floating around. And so Albert was basically placed on house arrest by his family, while Annie was declared insane by Dr. Gull and packed off to an asylum. Were they still so freaked out about Catholicness at that time? Um, yeah, probably. 
but for legal reasons, they wouldn't have been concerned about the succession. And I'll tell you about that in a sec. Mm-hmm. Annie Crook, for her part, would drift in and out of institutions for the next 30 years before dying in one in 1920 at age 35. Meanwhile, little Alice was left in the care of one of Annie Crook's close friends who lived in the Whitechapel district, Miss Mary Jane Kelly. Ruh row. Now, at some point, Mary Jane Kelly told her friends, Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, and Elizabeth Stride, this whole sordid story. And they decided they could make a quick buck by blackmailing the government. Mm -hmm. And then Lord Salisbury himself organized the conspiracy to stage the women's murders as a cover-up of the cover-up. Okay. Gull himself, with his anatomical knowledge, was (laughs) tasked as the murderer... And so he... Oh, man. And then he drove... No, he... Well, at least the way Alan Moore tells it, he comes at it with, with gusto. Well, I mean, again, that's fictional. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm sure Mr... Uh, well, I'm not sure. I'm sure... I'm sure Sir William Gull was boring as hell. I don't know that he wasn't a murderer, but I don't have any reason to believe he was. Mm-hmm. He apparently drove around with coachman John Netley. Um, the assistant commissioner of Scotland Yard was also involved. His name was Sir Robert Anderson. Mm-hmm. And these three guys would work as kind of a street team, luring these women into a carriage before killing them. And then um, Gull and Netley had their own thing to do with the, the locations uh, where, the, where the women were dumped. Meanwhile, Gorman says Netley tried to kill young Alice twice, the baby. Um, But after the second attempt, he was chased down the street by witnesses and eventually, grief-stricken, threw himself into the Thames to drown. Now, there were four women mentioned. There was Mary Kelly, and she told three friends. But Mm -hmm. there's a canonical five victims. Yes, and the other one, um, Catherine Eddowes, if you'll remember, Carrie, had used the fake name the false name of mary kelly she sure did it was mary ann kelly or something like that mm-hmm. when she was um taken in by the police for being what drunk mm-hmm. yeah and so the premise here is that uh well the four uh victims he intended upon were arranged in the shape of a cross over um Whitechapel. Mm-hmm. gull never meant to kill eddowes at all and it was just a case of mistaken identity why did he want to put them in a cross? Well, <laughs> this is a whole thing. Um, William Gall and... The, now, I'm still speaking in Gorman's narrative here. Uh-huh. William Gall and Sir Charles War- uh, Warren, the commissioner of police in London, were both Freemasons. In real life or just fictionally? Only fictionally. Okay, we don't have any can, evidence of them being Freemasons in I, real life. I can confirm neither of them was. Okay. Um, but Gorman says they were both free, secret Freemasons and the police acted to protect Warren's uh, Masonic cronies while William Gull acted to turn the murders into a grand scale Masonic ritual that would help the guild usher in the new world order. So basically two birds, one stone. Exactly. Like, well, we got to get rid of these ladies anyway. Might as well make it freaky. He's doing magic that will ensure the Masons can uh, uh, dominate the backgrounds of power for the next several hundred years. Okay. Um, the book, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution, Yikes. claims that these killings bear resemblance to Masonic ritual murders. 
Is that a real thing? Not that I know of. <laughs> um, but it has it's been like a, satanic ritual murders. Oh, it's exactly like that because uh, Masons and Satanists are both kind of um, whipping boys for for uh, frightened Catholics, like uh, uh, bedtime stories, basically. Mm-hmm. Nightmare stories. Nightmare stories. Um, so all of the victims carry had their throats cut from left to right, which probably would suggest the person was right-handed. And doing it from behind. But you're thinking so uh, mundanely, Carrie. You need to think... Now, if they were doing it from behind, they would be left-handed. You need to think magically. I always do. Because the stated ritual penalty for revealing Masonic secrets, revealing secrets of the Lodge, is to have one's throat cut from left to right. Is that real? I, it, these are, these are sec- genuinely, these are secrets. Um, <laughs> yeah, but like Scientology have secrets and we all know it. Right. No, I, yes. Uh, yeah. Th- these things I think are actual connections. Okay. The intestines had been removed and placed over the left shoulder. And this brings us to, uh, Carrie, do you remember the, um, was it near the Edo's murder? The, um, the inscription on the wall? The Jews are the ones who will not be. Be blamed for nothing. The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Yes. Um, Jews spelled J-U-W-E-S. Mm-hmm. And we thought, what a weird misspelling. Sure. Let me tell you a little story that the Masons tell each other. Please. Uh, when the Temple of Solomon was being built, uh, the guy in charge was a Mason, of course, named Grandmaster Hiram Abiff. And he was murdered by three ne'er-do-well Masonic initiates named Jubella, Jubello, and Jubilum. Is this real? Is I'm, this really sh- I'm in sure scripture? it didn't really happen. No, is it really in scripture? It's loosely based on a Bible story, and the Masons have expanded it. It is a Masonic parable, yes. Are the names Jubella and Jubima? Yes, and, okay. yes that part's real. Okay. Uh, these men are collectively referred to in Masonic dogma as the three Jews, J-U-W-E-S, uh-huh. because their names all start with J-U. Okay. <laughs> this is all weird to me, but th- this is true. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the punishment for these men for killing Grandmaster Hiram Abiff, Carrie, was, quote, the breast being torn open and the heart and vitals taken out and thrown over the shoulder. So not the intestines, but close enough. The vitals, I mean, yeah, pretty specific. Um, there were triangular cuts on Catherine Edo's face. Well, we all know triangles are very Illuminati. Both pointing down and pointing up. These represent the two triangles symbolizing royal arch masonry. Is that real? No idea. <laughs> um, near Mary Kelly's body, police found two brass rings, two brass farthings, and several, not two, several brass uh, pennies. Mm-hmm. Brass is a sacred metal to uh, masons, apparently. And during uh, initiations, masons have to remove all metal coins and rings from their person before they go through a, a ritual to get to a new degree. Mm-hmm. They're also known to wear leather aprons during these rituals. Leather apron. And if I may, finally, Edo's was found in Mitre Square. Mm-hmm. And the Mitre and the square are both important symbols in Freemasonry. A mitre like a, like a holy rod, you know. That is interesting. Um, so all of those things together, for Mr. Knight, say this was definitely a Masonic ritual. Um, I will add a few other details. 
Gorman really does seem to be the son of a woman named Alice Crook, whose mother really was Annie Crook. So that part's real. Okay, um, the names are real. Well, and she lived in Whitechapel. That that story is true, except that there's no evidence to suggest that he's related to Sickert uh, or to Prince Albert Victor. Did Alice ever get killed? I guess not. No. Because she had the kid. She had the kid. Um, A woman, he never said Alice got killed. He said they tried to kill her. Right. Um, A woman named Elizabeth Cook lived at 6 Cleveland Street uh, a little while before the Ripper murders, the year before. Uh, could that have been a misspelling, Night Wonders, of Annie Elizabeth Crook? That's a stretch, right? A little. From Elizabeth Cook to Annie Elizabeth Crook. I mean, maybe. But these, I don't know. None of these are uncommon names, is my problem. Right, exactly. They're not un- uncommon names. Um, and the other problem with that one is that Cleveland Street, the addresses from 4 to 14, um, were demolished in early 1888. Uh, so before the April 1888 raid that supposedly grabbed this uh, poor woman and bundled her off to the asylum. Mm-hmm. Uh, there just were no houses there. <laughs> Oops. Oops. Other problems. <laughs> Albert Victor, uh, as we mentioned, he wasn't in town at the time of the murders. Uh, and in fact, he was in Heidelberg, Germany from June to August 1884, which is um, before the murders, of course, but when Annie Crook would have had to be conceived. Mm-hmm. So, Alice Crook. Yes, I'm sorry. When, when Alice Crook was likely conceived. Mm-hmm. Now, in adulthood, Alice Crook claimed her father's name was William Crook, which was Annie's father's name. Um, the father space was blank on Alice's birth certificate. Um, so either that's because they just didn't know who Alice's dad was. I mean. Knight obviously suggests that's because of the secrecy of, oh, no, it's the prince. Right. But either they just didn't know or it was her dad and they didn't want to write it down. Yeah. Um, Next, and I mentioned this before, Carrie, any secret marriage that Albert Victor would have had, a a important part of the story, certainly for the guy telling it, for Gorman, is that his great-grandmother or whatever, his grandmother got married to the prince because that would make his mother the rightful heir to the throne in Mm -hmm. his mind. Um, but any secret marriage that Albert Victor would have wouldn't count. There's like a royal, they call it the Royal Succession Act or something that they instituted in the late 1700s. Yeah, they vague, I think they recently changed that or Queen Elizabeth did. That's why um, women can be like the firstborn woman, uh, a daughter can be a oh, queen automatically now. Sorry, not that part. This is a... No, I know. I'm just saying it's... But I think a, it's the Royal Succession Act. Well, then maybe this is a different law. This is a law that says if you have a secret marriage, if you have a marriage no, that's it's, not it's blessed... No, it's all part of one oh, so, big thing. So now if you have a secret marriage that's not blessed by the... Well, they might have kept that part. So if Albert Victor had an illegitimate daughter, um, she wouldn't have had any claim to the throne. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, still wouldn't today. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see... Oh, this whole narrative, of course, of all of them being friends and gossiping about this baby. Um, We, of course, don't know that the Ripper victims knew each other, Mm -hmm. much less that they knew Annie Crook, who lived on the other side of town from them. Uh, The bodies all, um, pathologists seem to agree, appear to have been killed where they were left, Mm -hmm. not murdered in a carriage and then brought somewhere and dropped. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, damningly, William Gall actually apparently suffered a soak. I'm not laughing because of the stroke, but he suffered a stroke in 1887 that retired him from practice because he was partly paralyzed and could no longer speak. You don't have to speak to murder someone. No, and it does give you like an even scarier image, I guess, of like a shambling, mumbling Jack, but... Yeah, but no, I don't think he was whipping around the East End um, There was all hours of the night. Uh, there was no record of John Netley, the coachman, trying to kill babies, um, nor did Man, he... poor John Netley. Really character assassination here. <laughs> he just just seemed like... He He's just a coachman. He didn't even drown. <laughs> he, he was crushed under the wheels of his own van. Oh, no. Uh, in 1903, after he crashed it into an obelisk. You know, they have these kind of Egyptoid... An obelisk, Sean? Sounds like a Masonic murder. Masonic plot. Uh, he was thrown under the horses who didn't kill him, but then the wheels ran over him and he died. All right, crashed into an obelisk. It sounds like he was Masoned? disposed of he by may- the Masons. Maybe. It could be, actually. Fuck, we, we, we got to write a book. This is a bestseller. <laughs> Probably. Um, now, as I mentioned, Lord Salisbury and Gull... I love steak. ...and Gull were not actually Freemasons, uh, nor was Sir Robert Anderson, the... Uh, well, publicly, at least. The pol- yes, true, but publicly, uh, the police commissioner. Anderson actually also wasn't in the country at the time. He was in Switzerland. And when night, when this was pointed out tonight, like right after his book came out... He said publicly um, that, oh, yeah, I guess I didn't um, notice that. Well, you know what? I think it was probably Walter Sickert was the third person in the uh, conspiracy then. And then after this came out, Joseph Gorman, who was still claiming to be Walter Sickert's son, uh, quickly retracted his whole story in the Sunday Times. Jesus. Quote, it was a hoax, a whopping fib. Oh, boy. Okay. So he really went back on it. Yeah, fully. And yet, this theory is still kind of trotted out. I don't think it's trotted out seriously too often. Um, But it did implant in the public consciousness, I think, the idea that... Or maybe I should say reignited the idea that this could have been um, like a magical ritual. Because indeed, believe it or not, people were talking about the arcane aspects of this crime right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And that's why we will close here with the satanic rituals of Dr. Donston. Who? Uh, Donston? Yes. Robert Donston Stevenson, um, a British writer and journalist who was staying at the London Hospital just 150 yards from where Mary Nichols was found. Stevenson uh, had supposedly also been a medical doctor earlier in his career. He was a military veteran. He'd been a major in the Italian army. Um, he got around, and, and it sounds like at this time he was kind of an itinerant uh, con man slash self-proclaimed magician. So I don't know. Um, Stevenson was staying at the London Hospital for months. Um, he was staying there for, like, mental help, physical help? They call it, I want to say, uh, it's like a, a disease they don't have, like neuropepsia or something. They don't have a... a, a, a the sweating sickness. Yes. Well, no, it's just not a disease anymore, but he basically had um, anxiety. Okay. Nervous, like a nervous breakdown almost. It was like sweating and anxiousness. Hysteria. Yes, that he was in the hospital for. So, okay. he was staying there for the whole time these murders happened. And after the first couple, Stevenson witnessed a Dr. Morgan Davies walking around the hospital ward. 
demonstrating how he thought the murders might have been done, like pantomiming the like, and then he got her like this, and then he does this. Mm-hmm. Stevenson found this very suspicious. I mean, it's not great bedside manner, but it's not unbelievable. And he reached out to ironmongery salesman cum private detective George Marsh. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, he was primarily an ironmongery salesman, but he was... Um, What's an ironmongery? It's a place where they make, like, melt down iron and smelt it into ingots or into steel. Oh, so he's just a salesman there. Yes. Okay. Uh, but he was trying to make a name for himself as a private, like a self-proclaimed detective. Sure. Uh, George Marsh. So Marsh actually found Stevenson to be the suspicious one, and he called the police to tell them that. Hmm. Um, but the police liked him. They were like, well, this guy's a doctor. He's respectable. And they admired, they said, his interest in the investigation. So the police kind of egged him on until Stevenson... Uh, until this Ste- really happened? Yes. Okay. So the police egged him on until Stevenson eventually published an article in the Pall Mall Gazette laying out his own theory of the case. Now, as I said, he was a self-professed magician who had kind of a hobbyist's interest in the occult. And so Stevenson claimed the murderer must have been, quote, a practitioner of black magic who had wanted the body parts for a satanic ritual. Hmm. Stevenson himself then later came under suspicion since, first, he was a medical doctor, sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, Second, and this is weird, I did look into this a little bit, uh, records of his wife, Anne Deary, stop in 1886 he had a wife and then there's just no more mention of her after an 1886 item Um, and at some point in 1887 stevenson started talking to him about himself as unmarried Um, but there's no record of a death or a divorce that's weird it is weird um and then the only thing arguing for the so whenever someone wants to connect this whole thing to ritual they always point to the locations of the bodies right i've heard this yes and there are only i mean there's five of them um and i don't know if you look at just the dots on a map they don't usually they don't scream any particular shape to me Mm -hmm. but they've been suggested as a uh, cavalry cross i.e the cross that jesus was crucified on um which is a christian symbol so i don't know unless you were somehow inverting it uh upside down yeah or um, in the case of, I have here Jack the Ripper's Black Magic Rituals. This isn't the, f- <laughs> this isn't the first book to accuse uh, Stevenson, although it does say on the cover that it has astonishing new revelations. Um, it, <laughs> it, it's sort of a spin on uh, Jack the Ripper, The Bloody Truth, which is a 1987 work by Melvin Harris. Melvin has written three books saying basically the same thing. Which is? I just told it to you. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, um, that this Dr. Stevenson had done all kinds of... Uh, but what I have here, this Ivor Edwards book from 2003, Jack the Ripper's Black Magic Rituals, really gets into the iconography. And uh, remember that we're starting from four points on a map here, Carrie. Five. Sorry, yes. He's discounting one of the murders as... Uh, oh, no, he's not. He's not doing... The, that's William Gall. So, yes, four, five murders. He somehow thinks they're supposed to evoke this. Uh, and we'll put a picture of this on the website if you want to go take a look. But um, how would you describe the arcane symbol uh, that that is formed by these four dots? How would I describe it? Um, well, just visually, it looks like an oval with a cross in it 
a diamond and two circles, like a Venn diagram in the middle. But this little chart tells me that it's an occult plan termed Vesica Pisces. Uh, yeah, Vesica Pisces. Um, and it's got combinations of, you can see here, Carrie, intersecting circles, crosses, um, a yoni, which is a vagina shape. Um, oh, yes. I should know that from Goop, from Gwyneth Paltrow. Ascending and descending pyramids, which are very important to both, um, you know, Masons and Satanists, apparently. Sure. Uh, you know my thoughts on this, right? That there have never been Satanists in this sense. It's, right. It's never Satanism existed. has nothing to do with Satan, basically. Yeah, or certainly... Or the it, idea of Satan. But, but the, things like this have never happened in in, in, uh, right. in the modern world in any document that I've seen. I'm sure some people have killed to be edgelords in well, the name Ri of Satan. Richard Ramirez did that. Yeah, but no, this is, this is like a, a big conspiracy <laughs> involving, well, maybe not this version of it, but involving royalty, involving a bunch of different people, involving magic... And whenever people say, like, even when he describes where he, the, the, this author, for example, when he describes where he tracked down his information on what these symbols mean and what the symbols called and stuff, um, it's just like a man who wanted to remain anonymous. I had to contact him through the mail. And then we, mm -hmm. it's like, okay, so you can never get good sourcing on, on magic information. Yeah. Which has been a big problem for me in researching this series. <laughs> um, but in closing, uh, I would just like to ask you, Carrie, of all of these wonderful suspects, uh, who do you think has, has the most compelling case for them uh, that you've heard tonight? I don't know about compelling case. I think the most fun is William Gull's slash royalty because it's always fun to think the royals are up to no good because a lot of the time they have been. But, you know, as we talked about way back in our Princess Diana's death conspiracy series, people like to believe that because it's not too out of the realm of possibility, both royalty and government and politics and all that stuff. Um, they have got, had people killed before. They have had done things that were bad. So it's not that crazy to believe that they could do something like this. But when you when you put on the magic element, I mean, again, it's more fun, but I don't believe it. I still think the most likely suspects we've talked about are Kusminski and Joseph Barnett. Now, whether I believe Joseph Barnett did all of them or just Mary Kelly, I'm not sure. But I think those are the most likely suspects we've at least discussed. My favorite, obviously, the royalties, uh, the royalty conspiracy. I think that's just fun. That's just, I mean, you know, as fun as a series of murders can be, right? But it's, you know, it's what everyone wants this to be. They want this to be kind of a gentleman jack, big secret conspiracy thing. Because it's more fun that way. It's more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Rather uh, than just a guy they couldn't catch. I agree. It's the most fun of these uh, theories by far. I would say skip Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. You just don't <laughs> want anyone to see the cover you're reading and get the wrong idea. It's just a tough, tough title. Um, instead, just read From Hell, which again, um, really just copies the story wholesale and presents it as fiction, which it is. Uh, and it's a really, really disturbing read. Uh, and it's all pencil black and white illustrations um and yet it's so it's so i don't know graphic and disturbing at some times and mm -hmm. so expressive and emotion emotional at, at other times it's, it's a very good work 
Yeah, it's great. I think if you're interested in the royalty uh, conspiracy kind of made into a narrative, check out that Jack the Ripper miniseries with Michael Caine. Probably find it on YouTube or something. And if you're just interested in like a gentleman Jack adventure story, um, check out Time After Time for like a full narrative film that's just a lot of fun and um, no one's ever seen it. But yeah, I think we're still waiting for our, for a good representation on the screen of what could have really happened. A uh, plug here for letters from Whitechapel too. Why not? Of the game. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a Sherlock Holmes... Oh, no, Holmes. just receiving letters from White... Like, if you know anybody who's going there, have them send something back. <laughs> and there's a bunch of Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper stuff, and I think um, some of it's supposed to be good. There there are games, there's a well, we version the... of the story, I think, written by the same guy who directed Time After Time. We've played the board game Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective yes. Jack the Ripper and West End Mysteries. Listen, anytime you get Sherlock Holmes involved, it's fun. So, I don't know. The best we can do with this story is you know research what we can but kind of take what we can from it and and either create art from it or or because we're not going to ever find a solution we're not going to ever find the answer i don't think but that also means the kind of fascinating bottomless well stays bottomless yeah you'll never reach the end with jack the ripper because there will always be some new weird thing to say even if we are past the point where new evidence will ever be found yeah the only thing i could see happening is some remarkable dna type of thing uh i don't think it will i don't i, I think a lot of stuff is lost or pro providence is lost it's been handled by lots of people and kept in different rooms at this point yeah no, I, I think, you know, if there's a heaven uh, and I go there after I die, I'm going to go through the pearly gates and whoever's there is going to be like, so do you have any questions? And I'll be like, yes. And then I'll say, you know, who killed JFK? Who was Jack the Ripper? Who killed John Benet Ramsey? I'm going to have a whole list. Jack the Ripper is definitely going to be on it. No mention of Cooper. Oh, it's going to be a list. I'm Dan Cooper. I have eternity. I'm going to ask all the questions. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast killer podcasts and slow burn media production subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows it's lizard people big world following news of the death of queen elizabeth ii on september 8th we have a fresh new conspiracy theory making the rounds oh that's exciting about someone you might not expect. Oh, no. Gaining traction on TikTok is a theory... Wait, wh why would we not expect a conspiracy theory to be about him at this point? It's always about him. <laughs> Spoilers. Gaining traction on TikTok is a theory that no other than Donald Trump will become the next king of the United Kingdom. The reasoning, according to Daily Dot, quote... 
One element of proof that Trump is to be crowned now that Queen Elizabeth II has passed away is based on him violating royal protocol by walking in front of her when he was president. Uh, What? A TikToker broke down the bizarre theory earlier this week. When I first saw this video, I thought he was fucking with you. You know, the way he likes to fuck with people, TikToker proud patriot said of Trump walking in front of the queen. Someone told me today he's actually been knighted as a king. Oh, knighted? Mm-hmm. As a king? Yeah, I don't think that happens. Uh, this video had received 160,000 views as of September 15th. I'm sure it has received more since. While some commented with appropriate incredulity, such as one user who, who wrote, it really puts it into perspective that we are living in two different realities. Wow. Just wow. Others weighed in with their own ideas about the conspiracy. Donald has royalty in his family and Melania is a Romanov. Baron the Little Prince books from the 1800s. Explain that last part. Is that a sentence? There is a book. No, I know. I'm familiar with the book. Yeah. But it just says Baron the Little Prince books. Well, there's a, I think there's a character limit on TikTok comments. So they're just trying to put everything in there. They can't. Breathlessly. Uh, Daily Dot notes, quote, this is a nod to yet another nonsensical theory that Trump has was either given or allowed to handle the Holy Sword of Arabia, which some believe is proof he's related to the Saudi royal family and that Baron is a time traveler. Wait, why the time traveler part? Because of the book. I see. Because of the Baron Trump book. The theory is apparently gaining traction with QAnon followers, much like the JFK Jr. theory we explored some time ago. But it's actually not a new one. Per Daily Dot, quote, Two years ago, a QAnon conspiracy theorist known as Melissa Redpill, the world, oh, Melissa Redpill, the world, made a video claiming that Trump is in the royal line of Judah and concluding that he will one day be king of England. Melissa brought a United Kingdom-based QAnon influencer, which is a frightening It's a whole phrase. genre of we- weird <laughs> trash person. Uh, she brought this person on her show for a rambling explanation, uh, Daily Dot's words, about how Trump is the true heir to the British throne. For an hour, she prattled on, again, Daily Dot words, uh, about the stone of destiny, read from the Bible, and finally made her way to the gold mine she'd supposedly unearthed about Trump's link to royal bloodlines. He is from both the Stuart line and from the line of kings of Denmark. That goes back to both lines of Judah, she said excitedly, presenting a slide with Trump's image in place of Elizabeth Stuart's. Elizabeth was married to Scottish aristocrat John Stuart, the third Earl of Lennox, who died in 1526. That's not how, is that how family trees work? No. It's biblical from so many different ways, so many promises. This is restoring the rightful heir to the throne, Melissa said. So, uh, if Donald Trump becomes King of England, well, I doubt you'd need us to update you in the event, listeners, but we'll certainly be on the story if it happens. Oh, the memes. The memes have been terrible on this one. Oh, yeah. I know. The Um, great MAGA king. The great MAGA king. Yeah. So, this is a Twitter uh, post from Mike Oxmall, Violently American at Violently America. Violently American? (laughs) I think it's Twitter, yeah. Um, breaking, the queen is dead, so it's time for the great MAGA King Trumps to take the royal oh. crown and make America great again. Can you read the hashtags in that, please? Okay. Uh, 
Hashtag breaking, the hashtag queen is dead, so it's time for the great hashtag MAGA, hashtag king, hashtag Trump to take the hashtag royal, hashtag crown, and hashtag make America great again. Thank you. Hashtag breaking news, hashtag news, hashtag Queen Elizabeth, hashtag RIP, hashtag King MAGA, hashtag King Trump, hashtag Trump won, hashtag save America, hashtag ultra MAGA, hashtag Democrats destroy America, hashtag Trump rally, hashtag patriot, hashtag MAGA King. Oh, they're always so um, pithy. <laughs> and then they have uh, Donald Trump's head photoshopped onto the body of... I think someone from God of War. No, I, I, I would guess even like one of those, you know, those mobile games like Clash yeah. of Lords. Yes. It's one of those. In front of a uh, American flag, which would be weird if he becomes king of England. And it says the great MAGA king. Um, so this is kind of what we're working with here. That's what, that's certainly what England wants for their king is Mr. America first. Yeah. You know? Who wouldn't? So um, that's the news, I guess. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, what do you think the Donaldian rain is going to be like? Oh, God. Greasy, right? (laughs) That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. Yep. Special thanks, by the way, to our beloved top-tier patrons, and I encourage all of you to come over and join them if you're looking for another way to support the show. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, and Ira. We love every single one of them. Thank you, guys. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel. By the way, that concert was great last week. You can find (laughs) Kyle at his YouTube channel. Music is a verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. <laughs>